know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone so I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 55 of Anglophies, in which we will have a happy ending. That sounds kind of dire. I mean, I don't really know where I was going with that. It, it, it sounds better than if we offer our listeners a happy ending, because that's a whole different genre. Yeah, that's not this podcast. Go find another podcast. <laughs> there are lots. I'm sure you can find one <laughs> that suits your needs. <laughs> of course, Tripod was last month. Anyway, hi, I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And today we are going to be talking about the happily ever after wars in romance and other genre conventions. And some idiot who's like, no, it's just a trope. How can you how can you not have an inversion of a trope? This mm. dude was a dude. By the way. <laughs> I'm real mad at this guy. Still, his article was like two weeks ago. <laughs> It's one of those instances where it's clearly a guy who's written the article and thinks it's so fucking smart. It's like, ha, make you think. Right. It's like those dudes who are like, I pretended to be a woman online for like five hours and I got 12 dick pics. Oh my god, women are telling the truth when they talk about how they get harassed online. Oh my god. Yes, yes we are. I haven't read that article, but this came to my attention through Courtney Milan's tweets. This seemed to be kind of what a low-key thing simmering through the romance part of the internet recently. It did seem to be like... I mean, I remember when like the articles started springing up. They seemed to all come at once. And usually we get this kind of thing around Valentine's Day, which is the, the only like allotted time of the year when any literary publication or pop culture focused site will decide that romance novels are worth talking about Mm -hmm. but this all came a lot later but from what i understand it had been brewing kind of for a while certainly for a few months because i'd seen on twitter now and then it would come up and by and large my my twitter friends would just go oh my god we're having this debate again happy ending or bust (laughs) yes like okay let's let's start with the definition of romance via the Romance Writers of America, i.e. the people who are sort of the union isn't quite the right word, but the professional association of romance writers is that it's a story about which relationship is centered and it needs to have an emotionally satisfying and optimistic ending. That's the definition. Okay? Boom. Podcast over. We can all go home. <laughs> Shortest one ever. <laughs> but what about our listener expectations that we will tangent for two hours? We have 
a convention here that our podcast <laughs> cannot read. We, we have a covenant with our listeners. <laughs> Kaylee will be Scottish. I will say something very Russian, and it will last at least a hundred minutes. Right. <laughs> so, Elena, tell us something about vodka. Uh, you should never flavor it with fruit. Period. The end. Oh, you would hate oh. me yesterday. I got <laughs> vodka in a jam jar with strawberry jam. Oh my god, that sounds great. It was amazing. So good. Are you supposed to drink it or eat it? Well, you could. It was all it pureed up, so it was it was like a drinkable thing. But it did come with a strawberry on top. <laughs> That's the Russian version of romance. Instead of strawberries and champagne, you get strawberries and jam. <laughs> I mean, stra- uh, strawberries and vodka. Strawberries and vodka, yeah. Well, when you guys come to visit, me and Raiden can have a drink of it, and then you can just sort of, like, watch us and judge quietly from the corner. She's <laughs> not going to judge quietly. Yeah. She's going to judge loudly. Yeah. I will broadcast <laughs> my judgment to the entire world on the internet. Have you met me? That's true. <laughs> There's going to be a whole long subtweeting as we keep drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think she's going to... Don't at me. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, it's flavored vodka. They've crossed the line. <laughs> They've crossed the line. We're in a different country. <laughs> yeah, England. Someday I will find ways to disrespect Scotch whiskey and bourbon just as revenge. This... Uh, it's okay, I'm not a whiskey drinker. You think that I care? It's the principle of the thing. But, but I don't care. <laughs> Like, you, you can do that all you want, but it's not going to have any effect. It's not going to have a similar effect. Fine, I will find some Minnesota thing to spit on. Cheese curds or something similar. Do you eat poutine? I don't, actually. I'm not a big fan well, of gravy. Well, good, because poutine is a war crime. Ooh. Poutine is great, and I will fight you. Poutine is a war crime! <laughs> I've never had poutine. You don't get don't. it here. Just don't. Just take your cheese curds and deep fry them or eat them raw. As God intended. Poutine is a cultural institution of the great country of Canada and you shall not punch me from this position. <laughs> so what would Russian poutine be like? Vodka. You just have the vodka on the side? or <laughs> <laughs> Like the fries are already not a Russian thing, you know? And if you have potatoes... Look, as long as you can eat it while you're drinking, you're good. <laughs> I'm going to say, at some point, some Russian self- somewhere must have experimented with whether or not poutine makes good zakuska. It probably does, actually. It's fairly rich. We, we, must, we, we must discover this. What is a zakuska? So zakuska is a Russian is. word. It's, it's a very Russian term. It means food you eat as an accompaniment to drinking. In other words, the drinking is the main thing, and the food is just a side thing that's happening. I think it's pretty much what poutine is. Like, inherently. Traditionally, it's uh, often something pickled, like actual pickles or sour cabbage. So something to help you balance your electrolytes while you poison yourself with copious amounts of alcohol. Yes. Okay. Well, no wonder you need the side dish if you're drinking vodka neat. <laughs> How else would and not with it? fruit so you can get the mixer is far and we have come full circle days. on this particular tangent I'm just saying 
<laughs> Fruit infused vodka helps prevent scurvy. International discussions of the merits of alcohol tangent on a podcast. Hashtag on brand. Damn right. <laughs> <laughs> so there. There are your genre expectations. We just did it all right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Raiden, do you want to fill us in more on the um, the happy ever after situation as you are the as I am the romance correspondent? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, this has been sort of brewing off and on for, I want to say, about a year. There was some paranormal, and I don't remember who wrote it, but it ended with the hero dead. And everyone was like, what? The actual what? And maybe it was J.R. Ward? That sounds right. Hold on. J.R. Ward, isn't that a Nora Roberts? uh... No, that's J.D. Robb. Oh, okay. J.R. Ward is a whole other person. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Continue. No, that's a fair question. That's an absolutely fair question. It's hard to keep our J-initialed authors straight, as it were. But um, And it's been a long weekend, guys. Our protest yesterday, I got sunburned. It was great. So put put a sunblock in your protest kit, kids. If you have water, you should have an energy bar. You should have sunscreen. <laughs> Sorry! On brand, talking about protests. This has been my life for the past six months. Anyway, it was a paranormal romance. The hero ended up dead. Everyone was like, what the shit? What the actual fuck? This is not a romance. Romances don't end with somebody dead. Although, as Dan Savage does point out, that any love story ends badly if you hang on long enough. Because somebody's going to outlive the other, probably. Or they're both going to end up dead. Whatever. Um, which is why you stop it at the, the happily ever after mark. Anyway, people are like, what? This is not, romance is not, this is not acceptable. This is not why we read the genre. And there was a book I reviewed that involved a problematic actual trope, which is the twin switch. And I was deeply concerned about is this actually going to have a happily ever after? And the main reason I was concerned about it was because this had been a discussion that had been coming up and this particular author that I was reviewing had never given any indication that she was not, that she was going to screw her readers that way. And she didn't, but the, like the surrounding cultural conversation really, um, sort of messed with my enjoyment of the book as I was reading it at the time. Like, I was very anxious. So, like, having to now worry that our authors and publishers are going to start doing this thing where they don't do the thing that, the one thing that romance requires is very worrying. And I don't... I don't expect the genre as a whole is going to go for it just because of the amount of what? No, that comes up every time this fucking subject comes up. But it's stressful. And one of the reasons that I read romance is because there's, there's usually a manageable amount of stress involved. Mm-hmm. I, I do think 
one of the things that will kind of stop this from happening, I'm, I'm talking like it's a, it's a huge invasion, but there is no, I, I came aware, became aware of the subject through Courtney Milan's tweets, and she was responding to one that kind of uh, joked or snarked about there being romance police, and she's like, nobody's policing or anything. But, to be fair, there is now this lar- large online community, there's reviews, blogs, so as a reader, for me, it's really easy to pick which books I'm going to spend my money on because I'm going to find an opinion on it and some plot summary and any kind of warnings that I might know like well in advance. I very rarely have to go into a book not knowing anything about it anymore if it's not my choice, like, my choice to do so. So I feel like if publishers and writers turn towards this trend but it's not something the audience actually wants those books will find themselves left out in the cold very soon. Mm-hmm. The reviewer community, it's active for a reason. You know, people band together and they really filter through. Yeah. Uh, believe me, if there was a book that, that one of us was reviewing that was not an actual happily ever after, we'd be shouting that to the rooftops. And say, no, we just want you to be aware that this is this is a thing that is in this book. And uh, you know, do with that information what you will. But we do not want you to go into reading this book thinking, oh, it's, it's going to have a happily ever after. And then it didn't. It's interesting for me because I actually, like you, I, I kind of go into the genre partially because there's... It can be emotionally um, heightened, but one of the emotions that's lowered is anxiety. Like, it's a low anxiety mm-hmm. genre. And part of my, part, for that reason, for example, one of my personal favorite tropes is the already married and kind of reconnecting. Because, especially in a historical, uh, where marriage is kind of almost, uh, like, mandated. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know that they're going to end up at married in the end, so I kind of like getting that over with in the beginning and just going through the relationship itself. Mm-hmm. But as I was, we were prepping for this episode, I was thinking of one book that kind of broke the happily ever after convention, and yet I didn't mind, um, and that was Lila Pace's Asking For It. The book made a splash, I think we even mentioned it on the podcast back when it came out a, few, a couple of years ago. I read it and really enjoyed it, but I didn't realize that it wasn't going to end with a happily ever after. But I also didn't realize that it was a duology. There's actually there's the follow up called Begging for It, which does end with a happily ever after. And at the time I read it, I didn't yet know about the follow up, and yet I was okay with it because the couple wasn't together, but the ending was fairly hopeful. Mm-hmm. And it didn't preclude the possibility of them finding their way back to each other. So I was taken aback that it didn't end with a, uh, you know, that there wasn't the happily ever after I expected. But in that particular case, I didn't feel betrayed as a reader by the author. The book we're talking about uh, that you mentioned was J.R. Ward's *The Shadows*, uh, where there's, I guess, spoiler alert, but there's a death. I found a blog about it that I'll link in the show notes so our listeners can look more into it. And um, I'll read an excerpt from that blog now. 
At this point, I want to bring up Jay Ward's The Shadows. Ward went all Nicholas Sparks on the ending. There was a sorry not sorry apology on Ward's Goodreads page saying that she hated writing the book, but that she had no choice because she only writes what she sees. Now, that's one way of excusing it. Reading The Shadows, I was devastated. I've gotten over my seething rage now. It's embarrassing to look back at my rather intense social media review, but it's obvious from all the animated gifs that I was hurting. So that's interesting. That's interesting both from what it quotes of the author and from the read- uh, this blogger's reaction because mm-hmm. the author saying, I hated writing it, but I had no choice. Oh, Contracts <laughs> are a bitch, man. <laughs> so it's interesting because it almost feels like she knew that this was going against the kind of establishment, but she felt like this is where the story needed to go. Of course mm. she did. I mean, J.R. Ward, I mean, the series that she's been writing, the, the Black Dagger Brotherhood, has been on how many books now? I mean, it's you know, she she's she's not new to this rodeo. She knows the expectations of it. She knows what her fans want. So either this was a maybe this was something she had planned all along. I don't know. I haven't read the series, but there's no way that she didn't know that this was something that would cause reaction. Mm-hmm. Particularly, uh, J.R. Ward is one of the few kind of paranormal urban fantasy authors nowadays who can still get a hardback for their release, but her sales have dropped drastically because readers you know the series has been going on so long some people just don't read it anymore people don't tend to buy hardbacks anymore that kind of thing so you know if that's the kind of thing that you want to go for with your your audience that you still have and you want to do the, the sorry not sorry thing like you shouldn't be that surprised when people are are angry over that That that's just really I mean, I don't that's disingenuous it's yeah, disingenuous, totally disingenuous. And it's, I don't want to criticise like how you write your stories or the process you go through, but the whole I go where my muse takes me thing. <laughs> like, you're an adult. You've got your own you know, sense of control. You know what you're doing. I mean, there, there are times where I've been trying to write fiction and I'm like trying to make the story go where I want it to go and the characters are just like, mm, no. Or, I don't know where this is going, so I'm just going to let you guys talk to each other for a bit and see what happens. So, like, I get, I sort of get that sense of the of people's process that's just like, you well, know, what I want and what seems logical for the characters as they exist on the page are not always the same thing. Does this remind you of the kerfuffle that happened when the Divergent series ended? Oh, yes, it definitely does. <laughs> I did not see any of that kerfuffle happening in real time but I did when I read the first book and was like oh that's an interesting thought and I read the second one and was like wow this is kind of silly and then I looked at the the third one on Amazon and there were enough people who were like let me just give you the entire plot summary right here so you don't have to spend any money on this book <laughs> You'll see why that's true in about three paragraphs. And I did. And I was glad I did not spend any money on that book. See, I think... I haven't read any of the series, so I don't know about the execution. I think on paper, one of those kind of rebel freedom fighter series where the protagonist dies in the end doesn't sound like a bad idea. Like, it sounds like it could be an interesting setup. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it, but it wasn't just, you know, a series about like a sci-fi setting, Freedom Fighters. This was YA, which has its own contractual obligations, such as the Love Triangle, or at the very least, uh-huh. a romance component. 
Thank you, Stephanie Meyer. But it's also the marketing is a big part of that. I mean, one of the things that was a big deal with Divergent was, you know, there was also the what faction are you part of the marketing, but there was also so much of that publicity was placed on the romance. Yeah. I think this is definitely part of the post-Hunger Games thing, because Divergent wouldn't exist without the Hunger Games thing, so a lot of Suzanne Collins. There's the, the story, the rumour about um, the Hunger Games, and I cannot find out where I read this, I've totally forgotten, was that she didn't want to do a love triangle. Her editor kind of insisted, because it yeah. was going to be a way to get the team, PR team, Liam Hemsworth, can't remember his name, thing, because that's a big way to sell, because after Twilight... The, after the territorial- Twilight, everyone... Yeah, the, the, the territorial element of it you know like the way that you encourage a fandom is to basically copy the tenets of fandom and in that case it was you know a good old-fashioned shipping war so mm-hmm. when you get to divergent which i believe doesn't have a love triangle but it does have that very you know kind of old school why romance at the center of it whether or not you know, you know want to take responsibility for it you are building up an expectation there Especially since Veronica Ross spent an awful lot of time defending the romance during the promo and saying, well, people fall in love at first sight all the time. I did. And it's like, okay, darling, that's you know very good for you. You know, have a biscuit. But then you see 25 when she wrote that. She's my age. She came in when she was still in college and she cannot write. (laughs) I have read her new book. She's a fucking hack. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, um, I I do also remember seeing <clears throat> an interview with Suzanne Collins going, they made me put the love triangle in. And I feel like you can tell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You oh, yeah. Absolutely tell. And, like, I never had any real, like, oh, yeah, there's there's an actual chance that Katniss is going to end up with Gail. Gail is Liam Hemsworth. I feel like the author is just sort of grudgingly putting this in. That scene in the third book where she, where we're doing the they think she's asleep so she can overhear them talk about her. Th- oh God, mm-hmm. shoot me now. But that's also talking about genre expectations. You know, there was a point in YA post Twilight where everything had a love triangle, but they weren't even love triangles because a love triangle would suggest that there is an equal chance that Beefcake number one will end up with the woman as much as Beefcake number two will. Which was never the case for any of these ones. You never believe Jacob is going to end up with Bella Swan. You nope. never believe that Liam Hemsworth is going to end up with um, with Jennifer Lawrence. Sorry, I forgot her name there for a minute. Katniss. You know, you, for all of these books, and I've read a number of these YA ones, particularly post-Twilight, you you know instantly which one she's going to pick. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, and it, like, the, the add-on, you know, the, the third wheel is almost like just proof of how wonderful she is. And there, I, I, I get that fantasy element, you know, yeah. two gorgeous guys who are in you. I totally get it. You know, I've, I've read True Blood. I, you know, I, I get that. Once again, there was also a really obvious pick there that she didn't go with. But that's another issue entirely. Uh, but I, that to me is also, I don't even think it became about the story or the genre expectations. It's Tara, it, wasn't it? it? It was me. Which one? Tara. She should have gone with Tara. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> she's just blood. not Bill. Just like... Never, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> they all should have just gone off with Pam, to be honest. <laughs> mm. But that's what it is. I don't think it's even about genre expectations or fan expectations or the conventions anymore. I think that's purely marketing. Yeah. Speaking of the kind of enforced love triangle, let me give you an an interesting one. This one's out of Japan and manga. Now, manga 
the, it's subdivided into like stream subgenres with very distinct tropes. You know, if it's a shoujo, that's the the love stories, that's the romance. Seinen is kind of the same, but for an older audience, you have shonen, which is uh, the action adventure ones. Shoujo, by the way, stands for young girl. Uh, shonen is young boy, so the boys was an adventure. Like they, they're very distinct, and you know exactly what you're getting. And I think for that reason. Harlequin romance is very popular in Japan. When I was there, you could see them in the stores. Mm-hmm. And they intersect with shoujo manga actually a lot in some of their their tropes. I know that Harlequin was doing manga versions of books. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw that as well. still are, but that was, that was a thing that sort of flared in the U.S. very briefly, I want to say like four years ago. Remember when there was a Twilight manga? Yeah. <laughs> I took a picture of the star. I was like, where is your god now? In fairness, it was one of those things where I saw it and I thought, of course this fucking exists. <laughs> uh, one particular one. It's called Uwasana Midrikun. Uh, it's a it's a shoujo uh, set against sports. It's set against high school uh, football, but soccer football. And mm-hmm. for it ran and it had the obligatory. So there's the girl and there's kind of the two love interests. Once more of a bad boy, once more of like the friend, the friend love interest. And what that author did in the end is she had the reader vote and she said, I will write the ending you guys want. And they okay. picked the friend. They did not pick the Draco in leather pants. And, and, and that's the ending she wrote. All right. But the problem there with that is, um, I don't know, maybe that takes freedom away from it for her in terms of actually setting up that romance properly and establishing it. But then again, if she genuinely doesn't know who's going to end up with the heroine, then she at least has the freedom to properly explore both options, which is interesting. Because it is yeah. theory, like, like it wasn't written, unlike a book, it wasn't given to the publisher's book. You know, she wrote probably the three chapters. I don't know. Uh, it, no, this wasn't the first time author, so she, she probably just had like this option. And, but it's like a weekly installment. It publishes in a huge like magazine where they mm-hmm. all run their weekly chapters. So she might have an arc planned out. Like this is what's gonna happen during the the mid season championship they, they the schools go to, right? Like but she won't know the ending like they hope this will last for years because the manga will last as long as readers want it. They there can't mm-hmm. it's unless there may be some that are planned as like miniseries essentially, but if they're going into it as a weekly series, like if it runs for five years, for six years, that's how long it's going to run. How long is Naruto? How long is Bleach? There's no ending for those. No. Well, Bleach just recently ended, didn't it? Well, how long did it run, right? Like th- those times. It was mercifully put to sleep. <laughs> well, One Piece is still going. I believe it's currently the longest running, or at least it's still going. Bleach's original run was 15 years. <sighs> Wow. Wow. And didn't they have an anime for Bleach that the anime caught up to where the manga was? And then. And then you get filler episodes. Yeah. That's the thing that that happened. It went in a different direction than the manga, and then somebody looped back. I think that also happened to Utena because they had to finish. Well, I think the uh, the manga author actually hated what the anime did, but that's also a thing that happens. Mm hmm. You can usually tell what the filler episodes. I mean, that, that's what an interesting thing of Attack on Titan is. They deliberately says, "Okay, we're just gonna wait till you're done, and then we'll catch up," mm-hmm. which is really admirable. But I'm also just like, I, I would really like some episodes, please. <laughs> okay, so talking of genre expectations, I think this is an interesting thing to talk about. 
genre expectations along the lines of gender, in, both in terms of things that women consume and things that star women. Mm-hmm. Because there is a rumour currently going around that Doctor Who, for, uh, the new series, is just started with Peter Capaldi still playing the Doctor. The rumours start he is going to be replaced at the end of the season by an actor called Chris Marshall, who's big in the UK, but not, you know, big anywhere else, really. He was on, he's the guy in Love Actually that goes to Wisconsin. Oh. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So he's done a lot of TV here, um, and the rumour is that he's actually going to be coming at the end of the season. And the the rumor they re- that he was um, that was surrounding that was the reason that he is the doctor is because the BBC didn't want to quote unquote take a risk on hiring a woman to play mm-hmm. to be the doctor, which you know um, I call bullshit. Mm-hmm. But I've had to read so many damn think pieces about how the doctor's just a woman. This is what you know the story is about, and you should stop trying to insert your social agenda into it, you know, how dare you compromise the verisimilitude of this show about a time-travelling alien with two hearts by making him a woman. And it was just, it got me thinking about how, you know, sci-fi in general is coded as a male genre, mm-hmm. and how that leaves genre expectations and, and you know, very socially ingrained fan expectations for the role of women in that sort of thing. Even something like like Outlander to an extent, which is written by women and is consumed almost exclusively by women, still falls into a lot of these, well, historically, this would have happened. It's like, we've got fucking time travel, though. <laughs> right. So I was just, I was wondering about that. I think that's a really, I don't really think there's a question there to open to the floor. <laughs> but um, as free women who generally are pretty, you know, consume certain degrees of sci-fi, you know, and other genres that fall along these very kind of archaic, narrowly defined, entirely out-of-date lines of gender. Mm -hmm. How do you you even go about doing that? It's interesting because you find, I think, so many examples of men writing what is, for example, essentially romance just set in, say, sci-fi or fantasy, and yet it's never classified as that. There's always, every year there's a think piece of, why aren't we calling Nicholas Sparks romance, right? Because uh, we don't want him. <laughs> because there's no happily ever after. Everyone dies. That's true. <laughs> and but also, also, we don't want him. <laughs> but also, you know, he he's considered like literature and like romance is is set aside. I'm thinking of um. Let's see. If, I, I'm curious if any of my our listeners know this, but Christopher Stashef's Warlock series, which I really liked as as a kid and a teen, and it's one of those kind of sci-fi. It's sci-fi where the main character is from a like a spacefaring world comes to a medieval setting uh which has magic so it's essentially sci-fi masquerading as fantasy and sure. it has a strong romantic element in the first few books and by the the later ones just devolves completely into erotica <laughs> devolves is a, is a is a probably a loaded term here because it implies that it's somehow less than the original more adventure style books but the adventure really takes a back seat and it really just essentially like by the time it goes to the main character's kids being grown up all every book is the same like are they gonna end up with the one they're meant to be with or will the futuristic agents triumph in separating the lovers no they will not true love triumphs okay move on to the next kid mm-hmm. and you know was that I would love to know if, at the time those were written, I don't know, I guess, I haven't looked up, I think they're probably originally from, like, the 80s or 90s and probably got written way into, like, 2000, you know, around the 2000. I wonder what, 
if if they had like an instant following, what would have been the reaction? Would people have been going like this isn't even the like the sci-fi or fantasy adventure I first signed up on signed up to read? And is it different because the writer is a dude? Which brings me to the one question I never find any original writing on, probably because I guess it wouldn't have been online, it would have been in magazine ends. I'm dying to know whether Anne McCarthy got flack for Pern being a sci- classified as sci-fi when it was such fantasy in the first... Like, to me, I wouldn't have known that it was sci-fi if I... If, if it like uh, yeah, it, it wasn't sci-fi until book three. But I think the lines of sci-fi and fantasy are generally considered more malleable than, you know, yeah. romance with every other genre. Yeah. And I don't know if that's entirely to do with gender, but it probably is. It's completely to do with gender. Hmm. Do you find that fantasy intersects with romantic elements more than other genres? Like, if I read a sci-fi adventure, I don't necessarily expect there to be a romantic subplot. But, you know, at the heyday of, I don't know, Dragonlance and Wheel of Time, we all expected that epic fantasy to come with a a heroine for the hero to smooch. Mm. Right? Yeah, I mean, thinking back to the original Dragonlance Chronicles trilogy which was my sort of introduction into the world of adult fantasy, which explains a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Cause it's, they, they wrote those at like, they were playing a D and D game to right. figure out where the story was going to go. And knowing that now, like you can tell, <laughs> which is an interesting way to write a book. I, I can't deny that, but also you can tell. You know, they had their adventure party, and yeah, quite a lot of those heroes got paired off unless they were, like, the sexless kender, because uh, hobbits and hobbit-inspired races apparently don't have sex unless you're Samwise Gamgee, in which, get it, Samwise! Tolkien sort of is like, oh, yeah, also we marry Aragorn off to Arwen. I know you saw her for like a paragraph and a half two books ago, but here she is. She's queen now. Yay. Well, Tolkien was of that brand. I think Tolkien was like C.S. Lewis in that he kind of followed the Greek lines of love and that, you know, erotic love, sexual love with a man and a woman was lesser than the familial familial love between intellectual bros. Mm. So that would make sense. (laughs) Yeah. Thinking is better than sex. (laughs) It is if you're Tolkien, I guess. <laughs> Where is it going with this? Get it, Samwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, if Mr. Frodo's not going to give it to you, go elsewhere. Right. Right. And Rosie is a perfectly lovely person, I guess. She gets, what, four lines in the movie? I don't think that. No, I don't think she gets any lines in the movie. No, at, at one point... Um, in the first one, she tells, as they're all leaving the Green Dragon, she tells them to have a good night. Ah, well, there we go. See, Fully she spoke to him. Clearly, they're meant to be together. Yeah. Well, that was interesting is in terms of I was thinking about this, I watched the video that Lindsay Ellis did on Disney villains and are they going, are they dying out? And one of the things that came up was now there's less focus on like romance as the sort of central tenant of a Disney princess, whereas before it was pretty much her sole motivation. Mm-hmm. So you you got these ex- examples of things like, well, Merida and Brave doesn't seem that interested in boys at all. Maybe she's gay because 
there is absolutely no middle ground between being obsessed with boys and just not being interested in romance as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I think her, and, having other things to worry about, there was kind of a lot going on for her in that movie. She doesn't want to get married at thirteen, son. Yeah, right. It's the same thing with like. Not so much the princess movies, but in, you know, Finding Dory, there is a scene where there is a woman standing next to another woman in a shot, and instantly there were all these pink pieces saying, are they lesbians? Which I'm pretty sure is a Parks and Recreation joke as well. Mm. There's two women standing together, they must be gay. Right. And I think that sort of speaks to, in terms of genre expectations or fan expectations, when you have so little of an option like that, when you, there is like... No LGBTQ mainstream content. Right. You grasp on what there is. Even when what is thrown to you is frankly really pathetic crumbs like LeFou in the new Beauty and the Beast movie. Oh, God. Which is such bullshit, right? Right. <laughs> and, you know, I'm glad that Disney st- stood behind it when, you know, countries like Malaysia were threatening to ban the movie and all these things. That is important. Or Alabama. It's, yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, the drive-in theater industry of Alabama is just, you know, yeah. it's booming without that. But that's, you know, if you had not known beforehand, if they had not made it a big part of the publicity that LeFou is gay, when he has that scene where he, like, this guy just, like, dances with him for, like, half a second, would you have known? I mean, yes, but it's also was pretty clear to me in the animated that LeFou was... In love with the Gaston? Not necessarily in love, but definitely had had some breaches feelings for him. <laughs> but that's the thing is, Disney have spent decades working with that kind of subtext, right? For you know LGBTQ subtext. Sometimes that's really fun, and other times it's kind of insidious because it's basically how how do we make our baddie very bad? Let's code them as effeminate and gay. Mm-hmm. So when you actually get a chance for, hey, an actual exclusively gay character, I think exclusively gay was a term they were using, and it's just this kind of nothing little moment, and then the rest of the time he's a sassy gay hype man to Gaston. Right. It's, you can't help but feel like there's just, like, the air has been let out of the balloon. Mm-hmm. Also, I have other problems with that movie, but that was just this little thing. And I generally like Josh Gad in it. Like, I enjoy sassy gay hype man, LeFou. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I mean, I would mind if he stood behind me and offered advice and you know, like, bigged me up when I needed it. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like we can do more. I feel like when you are a multi-billion-dollar company, whose films are guaranteed to make, you know, approximately money, fifty bazillion dollars. Yeah, that you've got room there. Like we've got this talk now. Like there's like a little bit of queer baiting going on. I think with talk of this, the new Star Wars film saying would Poe and Finn get together. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, totally, we love those guys together. And it's like, you know, it's not going to happen. Just, you know, give us something. Right. You can start with putting John Boyega in the promo posters. That'd be cool. Oh. I know I'm asking for a lot, but... And stop blowing up Poe's X-Wing fighters, damn it. <laughs> yeah, demanded. he does have a lot of money. Come on. Do you remember uh, when Pacific Rim came out and what a big deal it was that there wasn't a romance between the main characters, that they didn't kiss in the end? And there was like think piece upon think piece of have we moved beyond mandatory romance between the leads in our sci-fi action? Because I remember that was a deal. Apparently that was a trope 
that we were now very bravely discarding. Well, the fact that Pacific Rim spawned its own Bechdel Wallace style test for, you know, proper gender representation in films, or at least a more kind of nuanced take on it, I think speaks to its eschewing of certain expectations. But I do remember more debate being, well, do they get together at the end? Or are they having like a, mo- a romantic moment? Or are they just having a, you know, a mind meld scene? <laughs> I mean, I I liked that you got to have that interpretation on your own. And GDT was like, whatever you want to think, I'm good. I mean, after Crimson Peak, we know when Dottora wants to show us romance, he, he's going to show it to us. He's, he's going to show us with Tom Hiddleston's hand down up his sister's skirt um (laughs) (laughs) in fairness that is a genre expectation if you've read a lot of gothic horror it's true it's true (laughs) people should give Guillermo money to make more movies you should yeah his monsters exhibit is at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts right now right now and I am not going to get a chance to go home before it closes. So I told my parents, and I should remind them, that they should go, since they are members of the museum, and also pick me up a copy of the catalog. Which they said they would, but I should remind them that that's a thing they said they'd do. If you haven't had the chance, go on YouTube and watch the video of Andy Richter going on the tour of Guillermo del Toro's house. <laughs> it was like, here is my library with like full-size statues of Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, and here's my haunted mansion room, and here is Linda Blair in The Exorcist next to me on the couch, and then here is my disappointingly normal kitchen. <laughs> like, it's just a kitchen. <laughs> There's nothing else like horror-related at all. It's really funny. Give Guillermo del Toro money to make movies. Mm-hmm. And hire him for Star Wars! No kidding. It's not too late to replace Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> Speaking of genre expectations and bullshit, can we talk about Jurassic World? <laughs> you know, I still haven't seen that. Don't waste your time. Remain, na- remain hopeful and naive by not going to see it. Like, I genuinely think there's a case to make at it, that it is one of the most regressive blockbusters of the modern age. In an era of Zack Snyder's crusty tissue papers lining the cinema, like <laughs> Colin Trevorrow may, may have made the worst. Because it is so... Like, if you compare it especially to the original Jurassic Park, which was a huge film for so many people of that age, that age group, you know? Yeah. It's really, you know, very radical in very small ways. Like, the entire thing about the Laura Dern character, you know, she is easily one of the most capable people in the, the film. She is, you know, smart and independent and she's funny and she's in on the joke and she makes the jokes with guys she doesn't just stand at the side being the solemn straight person like you know Gamora in Guardians of the Galaxy Mm -hmm. she's the one that's really doing a lot of the work in that film and then you watch Jurassic World and there are four women with like major speaking parts three of whom cry very heavily two of whom seem to be defined exclusively by children and having children and the guilt of maybe not wanting to have children. And then there's one who dies horribly. Horribly. Really brutally. And only two of them, and only Bryce Dallas Howard speaks to any of the other women. Yeah. He only speaks to two of them. The Katie McGrath character who's like supposed to be this like 
they keep talking about her as this obnoxious assistant who, how dare she not have her eye on the boys when she's like supposed to be looking after him? And then I read an interview Colin Trevorrow did where he tried to justify the shitty way she dies, which is really prolonged and unnecessary and quite hard to watch. And he was like, well, you know, she's such a bridezilla. And I was like, wait, that was a fucking wait. character trait? <laughs> Does anyone remember that bit in the film where she was constantly talking about a wedding? Because I don't. Nope. Seriously, fuck Colin Trevorrow. Just such a, you know, immense potential for a story like that. And all he makes is this nasty, mean piece of work that seems to think that, you know, romancing the stone was the height of romantic and sexual chemistry in film. And he wants to try and recreate that, but with way less charm and way more sexism. Mm-hmm. But hey, seen the stone is a fun, fun movie. It's fun. But like, I also buy that Kathleen Turner and Michael Douglas would do it. Oh, definitely, definitely. And poor, like, okay, Chris Pratt is at the bottom of the Chris list. The official He's like number seventeen hundred and forty-three at this point. For those of you wondering, the current ranking is one Hemsworth, two pain-free Evans. Evans knows what he did. Worth got moved up due to the Thor trailer? Yes. Okay. Just the moment where he's... Well, for that, and he, he has never, my list memos. Yeah, but he has never looked hotter than he does in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> that, that is actually true. Right? And he gets to be funny! He's a friend from work! <laughs> If anyone in the in our listener base has not seen Taika Waititi's other films, go and watch them. Particularly what we do in the shadows, mm. because then maybe he will continue working with Chris Hemsworth, and Chris Hemsworth can be the rival alpha in the sequel for the Werewolves movie we're getting called Werewolves. <laughs> <laughs> we're werewolves, not werewolves. <laughs> the most weird line ever. <laughs> Like, how badly do you want a movie where Alpha Werewolf Reese Darby goes to war with Alpha Chris Hemsworth and they get to be funny? Oh, can I side tangent? Speaking of expectations, and this was not a genre betraying me, this was me kind of being betrayed by my ignorance. But I knew nothing uh, about the UK show being human except that it was like its basic premise. And I always assumed that it was a sitcom because it sounded like a sitcom. And then I watched the first season because it's on Netflix here in Canada, and it turned out to be something opposite of a sitcom. <laughs> oh, it's pretty bleak at times. <laughs> that was a bit of cognitive dissonance. Just a warning to anybody else who hasn't seen it, but also thinks that a ghost, a werewolf, and a vampire live together and try is is a, is a good sitcom premise, which it probably would be, actually. <laughs> I think that's interesting in terms of the um. Well, I'll do tangents. First of all, we were talking about uh, the Chrises, you know, the Hollywood Chrises, the four of them who are generally, you know, on the same kind of spectrum of what we expect from a kind of Hollywood leading man, masculinity, A-lister kind of persona that doesn't mm-hmm. really exist in Hollywood anymore, but we're still kind of trying to push it. But now it's in the realm of the the blockbuster, the expanded universe, the franchise, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons I grade them is because it's funny um, and because it inspires really fervent discussion in my Twitter feed. It does. I got into a fight with uh, Elise and Carrie who believe that at least until like the last time 
Evans opened his mouth, which, you know, you make my pants feel nice, but then you talk and my brain gets angry. (laughs) (laughs) That they were like, how dare you put Chris Pine? He's just so boring. And I'm like, uh, Silver Fox Grandpa. Mm -hmm. Come on. I mean, okay, hell or high water alone. Damn right. He makes really interesting choices. I mean, we're ignoring the fact that he has a terrible haircut currently. That was what originally put him below Evans. But then Evans opened his mouth and was like a typical Boston sports boy. So we have to move him down. Yep. There is a system in place. I can't there explain is. it, but there is a system. I expect a wrinkle in time uh, to keep oh, Pine at number die. one for a while. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. my God. Silver, Silver Fox, scientist dad. Yeah, it's yeah. coming. Oh. It's coming. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. Like, Hemsworth can stay relatively dominant as long as he continues to get opportunities to be funny and buff at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, so what I'm saying is we need more Ghostbusters movies, but also yeah. just more of Thor getting to be funny. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. I think Marvel have struggled to give Thor an identity and give that franchise an identity beyond, like, you know, he's buff, he's kind of a fish out of water, and we all know that you kind of prefer his brother more. Mm-hmm. But now with Thor Ragnarok with the trailer, you actually get a sense okay, he's basically like a Viking space alien magic scientist hammer-waving fish out of water. We know this is dumb, and we're going to lead into that. And we're going to give you Jeff Goldblum, because that's how we're leading into this. Right. Right. And we're going to give you Tessa Thompson, and we're going to give you Kate Blanchett. We're even yeah. going to make you like Tom Hiddleston again, because he's just sitting on that couch. <laughs> I really right. want that couch. Really. It's, a pre- it's a pretty cool couch. What did I say? I'm finally excited for a Marvel movie again. Like, mm. actual Marvel Studios. But I did like Logan an awful lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Logan was great. Talk about breaking expectations of the genre right there. That is a film. Well, the thing is, yes. it depends on what genre you ascribe to. Like, if you went into... Well, that's a we western, think, so... Yeah. Right? If you think of it as like a Marvel tent... Like, is, is, a, is MCU a genre, right? Like, because... Or even, like, x-men because if you think of those as kind of subgenres of their own then yeah it went against but if you actually look at what it should be which is it's like i said it's a western the old man versus the world kind of swan mm-hmm. song it was a very good example of that yeah but i think because there had been so many x-men movies and so many wolverine movies and the expectation is always this is just setting up another wolverine movie that's going to come out in like three or four mu- years once Hugh Jackman's done another musical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for them to fully commit to the finality of that story and to a very particular genre, even for I think a lot of people weren't necessarily expecting it, because I've, I've been telling people, go see Logan, and they're like, wait, really? The Wolverine movie? It's like, but it's not just that. It is yeah. you know, a heartbreaking meditation on aging and pain and death <laughs> and it's also funny occasionally and it's really violent and it's a western and yes. you're sure it's really wonderful in it and it's going to break your heart but you're also going to laugh occasionally and there's a really cool kid in it you know yeah like i couldn't even properly sell it in the way it needed to be because it was just completely blew away every expectation i had of it as someone who really doesn't give a fuck about wolverine mm. Yeah. But if you know anyone who's ever had a degenerative brain condition or brain damage, uh, Logan will hit very close to home. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it, but like, like go in knowing that if that is a worry. For yeah. You. And that, like, think about the the actual practical applications of Wolverine's claws and his fighting style, 
You're going to see all of it. All of it. Patrick Stewart for the Oscar. Yeah. Mm. Which is never going to happen, but he totally deserves it. It's never going to happen, but we often get a at least a, a Best Picture nomination from the early part of the year. And yeah, but I what's going to get that, that then? This or Get Out? And can we have both? Oh, both. I think Blue House are going to push Get Out hard. It is such oh, a yeah. um, you know, a massive it's a, a right. phenomenon in a way that films don't really get to be unless they are part of a franchise or star a bunch of people you really know and this right. is you know okay no. so well, let's talk about horror conventions a little bit like black dude dies first <laughs> is a well-known horror convention true and this movie is like not that definitely <laughs> not that the point is not that plus you also have the guy like i have not seen get out and i'm not going to see get out because I do not do horror, but I have had people explain it to me, and I feel like it's done well enough that my white liberal guilt does not require me to pay $12 for a ticket I'm not going to use. I did think about it. But you have a character who whose job it is to be the audience surrogate saying, dude, dude, things are fucked up. Maybe you should leave away. Just leave these people. They are weird and creepy and something is wrong. So having that person in the movie, even if your main character doesn't actually listen to them, I think is is an interesting subversion of putting the audience's feelings on screen for you. Yeah, horror has a long history of, you know, being a means of social commentary and kind of playing around with its own conventions. Like the Scream trilogy mm-hmm. is basically that. Yeah, It's people openly talking about how to act and how not to act in a horror movie while being in one and then not even listening to their own advice half the time. Right. It's But it's really rare that you see that followed along lines of race. Mm-hmm. Which is one of the reasons that it's so fascinating to see Get Out and do what it does and do it as well as it does. Uh, and to get the response that it got. Because mm-hmm. that movie cost $4.5 million to make, and it has made over $100 million in America alone. So not only was it breaking a lot of horror and genre expectations, it was breaking a lot of expectations from the industry about what sells and what people actually want to watch. Mm-hmm. It's the old, you know, well, you know, the biggest audience that we really want is quite uh, cisgender heterosexual men aged between 18 and 49. And all we can really give them are different versions of Chris. Right. And then, no offense to the Chris's, who we love, uh, most of them, but this went a huge way to drop... Well, I wouldn't say that it completely destroyed that expectation, because we also had films like Hidden Figures and Moonlight and stuff, but every time it comes up, there's always an article saying, hmm, what does this signal? And it's, it's treated like on... An, like an, a, a singular event yeah. in the in the movie-making business, when you're like... There's there's a whole bunch of spots on this scatter this this graph that tells you exactly that lots of different people watch movies and they want lots of different kinds of movies. And lots of different kinds of movies will do well. But Scarlett Johansson needed to be in Ghost of the Shell, damn it. Mm, did she? How bad did that tank? Uh I think it's projected to lose seventy five million dollars. 
<laughs> was it Roper who said I mean the whitewashing really doesn't matter because this movie is just such a hot ass fucking mess well I remember I can't remember if it was Richard Roper but there was one critic said something like I wish they hadn't even acknowledged it in the context of the movie at all because they've just made it even worse hmm. like you were always going to get shit on for doing this decision your fan base was always going to turn on you but for you to then kind of like rub it in their face yeah and not even make a, an interesting story out of that. Uh-huh. That's wrong. Okay, it, it, the budget was $110 million. It's currently grossed about $152 million. Common consensus is you need to gross two and a half times your budget to break even. Apparently, the I heard the advertising for this movie alone cost $150 million. So, ha, 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 ha. It, according to Box Office Mojo, it made $37 million domestic. That is nothing. Like, nobody went to see it. There was numbers that came out recently that the the most loyal cinema audiences in America and North America in 2016 were Asian American. Mm-hmm. But, you know, white people will only go see a movie with other white people, even when the, right. it's called Ghost in the Freaking Shell. Mm. Power Rangers made more domestically. Than Ghost Ouch. Ghost. Oh, oh I, f- I felt that one. Power Rangers made 80 million. More than twice what Ghost in the Shell made domestically so far. But think about that as well in terms of the expectations of non-European and non-American stories when they are told by Europeans and non-Americans. So, like, obviously, you know, China and Japan are a big part of this. There are Asian movies that have been remade for American audiences that made the necessary cultural shifts to, you know, justify that story. Like, The Departed. Mm-hmm. is based on a movie called Infernal Affairs, which is yeah. a Hong Kong movie, I believe. And that makes a complete shift so that it is very much about Boston. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, because every time you meet someone from Boston, they'll talk about that movie, in my experience. It's a wicked good movie, so I hear. <laughs> it is. I honestly think that the town was better. Ah, oh, you're sticking to the Affleck there. I, the I am. <laughs> Man, who would have thought Ben would end up being the decent Affleck? <laughs> but that's the thing is, there are instances where you can do it. There are even instances of manga and anime that is about white people. Mm-hmm. Like, Attack on Titan is set in Germany. Or Monster is set in Germany, actually. You know, There are all of these things that they could have done, but it is still the accepted norm that these stories are universal when the occasion calls for it, and that means it's universal when you can just replace it with white people. Right. And then you have Death Note. Oh god, I'm so sad about that. Ugh, me too. It doesn't look good! It doesn't look good. Fortunately, if you want a live-action Death Note, they already made a very excellent live-action movie in Japan. Yeah, it's really good! The original Chairman Kaga is the police chief. And he's great. I actually like the ending to the movie better than I like the ending to the anime. Oh, the anime just drags everything out forevers. Forevers. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so on the Death Note thing, side note, one, and I know this is petty, but Nat Wolf isn't good looking enough. Hmm. Like, is there a more perfect example of white privilege than here is a story about an Asian kid who has to be 
the most like otherworldly beautiful Asian man ever, or human being ever. Let's just put in some meh white guy, mm. and it will have the same impact, and you'll get all the same you know plot elements and subtext from that. Yeah. Uh, two. How do you have a Japanese god of death story without any Japanese people in it? It's an excellent question. <sighs> I mean, okay, I, I, I can I I can fan wake this, and it's. Like, fan-waking so hard, I'm going to get a repetitive stress injury. (laughs) (laughs) Take a break. (laughs) (laughs) But if you have it sort of in the sense of... I mean, you still need Japanese people in this story to make it make sense. But, like, white dude finds this the, the notebook and is, like, in classic white dude fashion, like... Well, I'm going to start fucking with things I don't understand. Let's see what happens. With nobody to explain to him, like, oh, bro, 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 bro. <laughs> Maybe don't. Maybe don't. That was, um, there was an article in Cosmopolitan um, talking about the problem of, you know, whitewashing death. And the, the killer last line, and I'm paraphrasing, was basically, there is nothing interesting or spectacular or unusual about a white guy killing people. That's true. And there's nothing unusual or spectacular, especially in fiction of white people going, oh, what's this spiritual thing that I don't understand? Let's fuck around with it and see what happens. Because, like, please see... African colonialism. Well, the interesting thing that Death Note's doing is there's a couple things that it's. Um, Elle is being played by Lakeith Stanfield, who mm-hmm. is an African American actor. He is in, I think he's in Get Out actually. He is in Get Out, and I believe he's in Straight Out Compton as well. The idea of having Elle be an African American is really fascinating because one of the, the interesting dynamics in Death Note is that. The guy who is most likely to be the murderer and who is the murderer is the one that no one expects to be because he is so quote unquote perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, he is handsome and well connected and privileged and incredibly intelligent and everyone likes him. And then you have the guy who is hired to investigate the case who is twitchy and weird and off putting and, you know, sits on the, his couch really funny and is generally just very suspicious. Right. In a way that would arouse people's kind of, you know, interest. So the idea of doing that and having the detective be a black kid who walks around wearing a hoodie, there is something there. But I don't think that is a, a, a dynamic to explore in place of an explicitly Japanese story with Asian culture and people at its heart. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you still need the Asian people to explain why there's a Japanese god of death there. Right. Because I think you could probably do white light and the exploration of white privilege and fucking around with colonialism style and getting, you know, really satisfying comeuppance. Like, that yeah. ending is very satisfying. But, you know, why, why can't L be Japanese in that case then? Because he would have the upper hand of, you know, you think you can fuck around with our culture, but I know what it is. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think there's something fascinating there. Oh, and also I just, um, I actually have the quote from the Cosmopolitan article. An angry white teen with easy access to a murder weapon isn't new, interesting, or original. Nope. And also Adam Wingard saying, oh, our version's got nudity, it's got swearing, it's got a ton of violence. Like, God, you are dull. Wow, that's shocking. (laughs) It's not heartbreaking. 
groundbreaking. That's another like shitty modern expectation of horror that seems very American, which is, well, it's got to be dark and edgy. We've got to make it violent and full of swearing and boobs, don't we? Like, I mean, the thing that makes Death Note really interesting is how kind of mundane the real horrors of it are. Mm-hmm. And how dramatic you can write. <laughs> Those scenes are awesome. I, mean, I don't want them to make a shot for shot remake of the anime. No one wants that. But if you're going to decide that Asian culture and Asian stories are awesome, you should at least have some Asian people telling those stories. Yeah. Like, who do you think is watching the anime on Netflix? Just go make an Attack on Titan movie if you're really enamored with, you know, manga stories about white people. Oh god, they would even whitewash whitewash the one Asian person in it, eh? Of course they would. Can I just say how terrified I am that they're going to be making the um, Akira movie? Hmm... Do you know who's currently favorite to direct it? Who? Jordan Peele. Oh. Which isn't the worst okay. idea, but like, can we not make an American version of Akira? Aren't we like living the American version of Akira? <laughs> oh, that's well, the Tokyo that's... Olympics are coming up very, very soon. So <laughs> <laughs> watch out. <laughs> hey, did you know which uh, which blockbuster movie was uh, based on a Japanese light novel? Tom Cruise's Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, it was called All You Need Is Kill, I believe. Yep. That's yep. a great movie, actually. Yeah, it was a good movie. And not just because you got to kill off Tom Cruise, like, a whole bunch of times, <laughs> but that you did get to kill off Tom Cruise, like, a whole bunch of times. If the marketing for that movie had just been, yeah, we get to wail on Tom Cruise repeatedly for, like, an hour and a half, <laughs> I feel like the money would have made more money. Okay, yeah. here's a question. Do you think there are st- major stories, um, be it from Asia or you know different parts of the world that aren't America, that could be taken and given a full sort of cultural shift in a way that makes sense, in a way that people would actually want to watch? Um, are there any examples you can think of? I know it didn't work when America adapted Shall We Dance, which was also a Japanese movie. Mm. Which one's that? Shall We Dance? I watched the original Japanese, it just kind of randomly caught it on TV, and then a few years later they remade it with... J-Lo, wasn't it? Yeah, J-Lo oh, was yeah, the I know dance teacher, and the name of the actor is like just falling out of my head. Was it not Richard Gere? Yes, thank you. With, with Richard Gere. And I just, and I actually didn't, I didn't bother watching the American remake, but it just felt like so much of the cultural context is a race straight out when you take it out of Japan. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's like, super, super repressed, right? Mm-hmm. The whole idea was that it was, um, look, almost this these dancing lessons that this middle-aged, you know, office salary worker was taking was almost, like, a subversive thing he was doing. Mm-hmm. And what this dance... And it wasn't really a romance. Like, he seemed enamored of the dance teacher, but it was more about how she represented a certain free, freedom that he was craving. But the movie ends very sweetly with him using his dance to reconnect with his family, with his wife and his daughter. Right. I think that's also just a problem that we have, which is, uh, I think, even in the Netflix age and the streaming age where you can kind of get access to so much more varied content and TV shows and movies and stuff... There is still this idea that, you know, the average American will not want to watch something with subtitles. So the only way we can tell this wonderful story is if we remake it and make it as beige as possible. Right. 
I have not watched the original British House of Cards. It's very good. But it's very 80s. Yeah, it is on Netflix. Netflix is like, hey, do you want to watch this? You watch the, the American, a lot of the American House of Cards, not all of it. But certainly the American House of Cards, as a da- like, I don't know how one-on-one the plot points go, but certainly whoever adapted it into the U.S. understands the U.S. political system. So that seemed to work out pretty well. The British version is, is very of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's um, basically most of the same plot. Like, you know, the Francis Urquhart's rise power, he's the Frank Underwood in the version. Yep. There is a, you know, very horrible surprise death. Uh, and it ends with him becoming prime minister. But the thing about the British format as well is we do limited series more often than Americans do. Right. So like we can say, okay, we're going to do three series of the show and then it's done. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think with the American crowd, it's much more, well, we've got to keep going and just like we're chug gonna, along yeah, until we're gonna we get canceled. Yeah, we're going to keep going until long after it should have been put down. So in that, in that aspect, you can make very interesting choices. I think I think House of Cards is hampered by the fact that real life is now just so much more weirder politically than it could ever be on a TV show, so yeah. there's no way they can really keep up. Yeah. There's also uh, American TV, I think, gets to be slicker. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, British stuff, like, especially in the 80s where we didn't really have a budget, it's kind of more rough around the edges and it had a bit more of that grounded feel. Whereas, you know, David Fincher is the executive producer mm-hmm. of House of Cards. So everything in that looks like a David Fincher movie. It's, it's really, you know, very clean, very sharp, yeah, very stylized. So we don't really do that as much. I mean, thinking <laughs> back to your original question, and I don't. I don't have a good answer to that. Like, there are certain things I would certainly like to see. Like, I would be lying if I said I didn't really want to see a massive budget Attack on Titan live-action film. I totally would. Mm-hmm. Because uh, from what I hear, the, the Japanese movie is not very good, and they make some changes to it that are kind of questionable. I would love to see, you know, Guillermo del Toro was supposed to be making the Monster TV series. Mm-hmm. And that's now apparently not happening anymore, which sucks, because that would be so good. Right. There are ways to do that kind of thing. But I think once this sort of stuff is perpetuated, like, I mean, I hope the lesson that Paramount learned from Ghost in the Shell is don't fucking whitewash and not, you know, don't put a woman in a lead role in a movie or all these other, like, deflections. Mm-hmm. And I hope that that won't perpetuate the system that is in place, which is evolving, but at a depressingly incremental pace. Mm-hmm. Which will then lead to the, you know, the the cons- the assumption that the only thing that will sell is a bearded white dude in a baseball cap making a movie about a buff white dude in a cape. Mm-hmm. Which will then mean it's much harder to get new, fresh, original stories told that aren't about those people and to let them be told by other people. So that is the worry. And I, you know... That's why, even though I don't think it's going to be any good, I'm going to go see the Wonder Woman movie opening weekend. Yeah. You end up feeling this like odd, depressing sense of duty to support the crumbs that are given to you, even if you know they're not going to be good, because it's all you're going to get, because they're looking for every excuse to give you nothing else. Oh, and also Joss Whedon shouldn't be directing Batgirl. But that's another issue entirely. <laughs> that is another issue entirely. <laughs> 
We've tangented so far off of genre conventions, though. I want to hurt us on for a wrap-up. We started this, we used the, the romance as a spring point, and I think, Raiden, you said something, like the, there was that quote going, well, what if happily's ever after is just, like, a trope, can't you subvert a trope? And, you know, we were discussing why we consider that, and that was part of the definition of a genre. Mm-hmm. What are some, let's finish with, with some examples of the things that are tropes that maybe have been sub- subverted that still make it work within the genre and within the, you know, the writer audience covenant that you can think of. Well, I just recently reviewed a book called My Fair Duchess, which is a, a variation on the My Fair Lady Pygmalion trope, but is like not mean the the (laughs) problem with my fair lady is that it's inherently mean because it's a bet in which this poor cockney girl is the butt of the joke and in this case the heroine becomes a duchess in her own right which is was extraordinarily rare but it happened and she's like i don't know how to act in society i need somebody to help me with like everything literally everything and she writes to her godmother who sends her steward who is the hero and his whole purpose is to help teach her how to act and how to talk and where to get her clothes and how to manage servants like the whole the whole package so i think that's a way of of taking a trope and looking at it and going, what are the problems with this trope and how can I fix them? So that's, that's one way you can do it. I'll link to your review in the show notes. And then, mm-hmm. and the, the author came into the comments and she was like, I did not actually realize that I was writing my fair lady until I finished it. And then I read it and was like, Oh, look at what I did there. <laughs> <laughs> Alyssa Cole just had a book came out come out which I've only read the first chapter of we're discussing it in the Smart Bitches book club on the 24th Monday the 24th of April that sounds right so I've been saving it until closer to there so it'll be fresh in my mind when we talk about it yeah it's the 24th but it's a romance set during the Civil War and both the hero and heroine are Union Army spies. And she's talked about like writing historical romance in an era in which history was not great for the people she wants to write about. Mm-hmm. And how sometimes like you just do it. People still had happy endings, even when the entire world wasn't happy. And there are a couple of people that we're talking about pitching a panel for RT next year and talking about writing history when the history isn't sexy, which if you put any sort of thought into it, history is terrible for all history is terrible for somebody, Mm -hmm. all of it. So like, so if, if you're so I feel like if you're saying I can't write 
you know, a romance with a happily ever after in this period of history because it's not great for everybody. It's like, um, right now isn't great for everybody, so how are you writing contemporaries? Right. And Alyssa also brought up that that her sort of her post election coping method was watching Yuri on Ice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know, explicitly a gay romance between ice skaters. And in the world of the anime, there's no homophobia. And someone asked the creator about that. And she's like, I didn't want to write it. So I didn't. I didn't want that in this world for them. So I didn't. (laughs) I think that is one way that you can approach it as well. As you look at a trope and you're like, I don't want to do it. So don't. And you need to make those narratives because the reason that bullshit like, oh, well, it wouldn't be historically accurate to have black people in the 1800s perpetuates is because those stories don't exist. Right. So when, you know, you get all these wonderful romance writers who do write historical romances about the African-American experience or the Asian experience and so on, that helps to fill in these major gaps that have been left in cultural history. Mm-hmm. You know, just because those stories don't exist doesn't mean that they didn't happen. You know, history usually is written by the victors, and to quote Linda Holmes, is written by the writers. Yeah, <laughs> and they tend they tend to be, you know, straight white dudes. Yes, which is how you get websites saying, "Hey, like, here's some great romances to read this Valentine's Day," and they recommend Thomas fucking Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Tess of the Dobervilles is such a heartwarming tale. Definitely. All right, well, I guess that was our thoughts on genre convention. Uh, I hope our 100-minute covenant with our listeners have been fulfilled. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly tangented enough. We did. We did. Probably 20 minutes too long. That's our that's our niche, according to that one tweet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Are we still salty about that tweet? We're a little bit salty about that tweet. <laughs> <laughs> We're a little bit salty. All right, so you can follow us on Twitter, and we would definitely appreciate any uh, ratings or reviews on iTunes to help other people find us. That'd be great. We've been really lax in in shamelessly begging for reviews, which other podcasts do. (laughs) We're bad at podcasting, guys. No, we're not clearly, because we've been doing this for 55 episodes. Holy crap. I think we've lasted longer than some of Trump's marriages. (laughs) I'm sure we did. We did. We did. Yeah. So, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back next month talking about something. We don't know what yet. But I will come back from the RT convention in Atlanta. If you happen to be there, come say hi. I'm very tall. The hair is actually red. We'll see everyone next month. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Anglofees, a made a fail production. You can reach us on Twitter at Anglofees. You can send an email to Anglofees at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and a review on iTunes to help other people find the show. Thank you.